Hello, and welcome to day three of this amazing event that is Global Supply Chain Week. I'm Anthony Smith, lead economist here at Freight Waves, and I am thrilled about this upcoming conversation I get to have with John Drake, who is Vice President of Supply Chain Policy over at the U.S. Chamber of Commerce. John, thanks so much for joining us today. Thank you so much for having me. Good to be here. So, John, it's been an incredible start to the year. Incredible might not be the right word to use from it. It's been very eventful, for sure. Um, Starting off 2022, out the gate, there's just been a ton of activity. And of course, just because the new year starts doesn't mean that there's just all of a sudden new things happen. It's a brand new, brand new start. 2021 was eventful as well. It seems like a lot has really bled over into this new year, for sure. Kicking it off, what does 2022 look like on your end? You know, I think it's going to be another challenging year for, for the business community. Um, like you said, right, a lot of the challenges that we saw in 2021, uh, they haven't stopped. Uh, and in fact, I think, you know, this year we're going to see those challenges continue. But I also think we're going to see more challenges added to that list of things that the business community and policymakers here in D.C. are going to have to be, are going to be confronted with and have to work through. Yeah. So, John, one of the things I love about your background is that you have both private side and some of that policy side really mixed in. So you really have a good sense of both sides of the table and really being able to make sure that, you know, we can really move forward in the most efficient way. You really have a perspective that I think really talks to both sides. When you're looking at 2022, are there any things that you're watching for policy wise that really kind of talks to what is going to be some of the big pain points or big issues to really kind of solve? Yeah, you know, so top of mind for every policymaker, and I think for every business, is inflation, right? And the supply chain crisis is a big driver for uh, for the news that came out of uh, uh, the administration today. Uh, I know we're recording this uh, a couple of days before the event itself, but like, you know, we are, we are continuing to see record inflation. The supply chain challenges that uh, the business community is seeing, whether it's at our ports, uh, with the congestion there, whether we're seeing uh, with the the shortages of, of critical supplies and inputs, everything from semiconductors to batteries to uh, to other base materials, um, these are all things the business community is going to be uh, challenged with. You know, but but those issues, but that's not the end of it either. Uh, you know, right now Congress is debating legislation that would essentially provide uh, more investment tools for the federal government to be more competitive internationally especially as you're looking at China, right? And this is the uh, U.S. Innovation Competition Act of the Senate, uh, the U.S. America Competes Act of, of, of the House. Um, these are two very similar bills. Uh, there's different elements in it, um, but it's a big priority for not just the Congress to pass this year, but also this administration. Uh, and, you know, what's important about that for supply chains is the funding for the CHIPS Act is in there, $54 billion to support domestic production of semiconductor capacity uh, here in the United States. There's additional money for uh, fund for basic research in critical industries, uh, more tools for the federal government to track and strategically plan around supply chain resilience. Um, but you know this legislation isn't the end of it either. Uh, uh, Congress is also looking at other tools to make our supply chains resilient, more resilient, as is the administration. And so I think you know. Those are just some of the things that uh, that we're paying attention to for 2022. Um, but it's like I said, it's going to be another, I think, long year, another year with a lot of challenges uh, and 
a lot where I think everyone's going to have to come together to work through it. And John, you, you mentioned some interesting yeah, things around the West Coast and the ports out there. Can you talk to some of the expectations for the regulations going out or what some expect regulations might be on the West Coast? Yeah, you know, uh, I think first and foremost, trying to settle down the challenges we're seeing specifically at the ports of LA and Long Beach uh, are going to be critical. Um, there's a few things that we're paying attention to. On the regulation side, you know, one of the more important conversations that's happening in DC is uh, a conversation that's happening at the Federal Maritime Commission. And for those of you uh, in the audience who may not be aware, the Federal Maritime Commission is essentially an independent agency responsible for the uh, for the regulation of the uh, uh, of the ocean carrier industry. And one of the things they're looking at is developing a set and set of standards to help better capture and report on the overall performance of the ports themselves. You know what what it means for a ship uh, to be on time, how long that ship is dwelling to get its uh, cargo unloaded and back underway, uh, what the congestion variables are are the ports themselves. These are these are important conversations that are a long time coming. They're overdue and coming, but I think it's going to go a long way towards helping the shippers and the carriers better understand uh, the the performance of the uh, of the ports, not just along the west coast but also the east coast as well, uh, in all ports. The other thing we're, we're tracking closely is the upcoming uh, negotiations with the longshoremen uh, that's expected to start in March uh, of this year. Um, you know, historically, these are always tough conversations. These are always tough negotiations. Uh, the longshoremen, you know, their leadership wants to make sure that they're striking the best possible deal that they can for their membership. And the port terminals that are represented by the Pacific Maritime Association they want to make sure that they're doing the best possible job that they can for their membership uh, and for the business community as a whole. Um, but we know that there's going to be some big challenges as part. And part of that is because of the huge amount of traffic uh, that the ports have been dealing with over this last year and a half. Uh, you know, and what that has resulted in is the port terminals, you know, they don't want to see any service disruptions. They want to make sure that they are keeping things moving as best they can. But you know what, the longshoremen, they've been doing an incredible job this last year and a half. And I think they've got a, lever a lot of leverage coming in. Uh, and, you know, if, if history is any guide, uh, you know, it should not be uh, unexpected to see work slowdowns, potential strike, uh, any and anything in the above as we get closer to striking a new labor contract. Yeah, I think a lot of that definitely makes sense. And, and I know it's crucial, especially for those longshoremen. They're, we're looking at really in the trenches, folks that are really doing a lot of some of the thankless work that a lot of other people might not even consider. Um, one of the things you mentioned, of course, talking about the West Coast congestion has been um, a word that's been popped up many times when talking about supply chain and capacity crunch issues. But that congestion has been a big one, especially on the West Coast. When we start thinking about really alleviating some of that congestion and really some of the investments that's going into the space now that there's been a spotlight put on the supply chain, it's it's strange because infrastructure is needed, but infrastructure can't happen yeah. overnight. Can you talk to some of the right. long-term plans on like, all right, this, great that maybe there's more attention on this, but it's going to be a multi-year fix for this. That's absolutely right. Um, you know, one of the big victories that came out of Washington, D.C. last year was the enactment of the infrastructure law uh, that provided a record uh, 
numbers of federal investment in our transportation infrastructure. This legislation is a long time coming, um, but quite frankly, uh, it, you know, it was, we should have been doing this for quite some time before now. Um, frankly, you know, I think Congress is patting themselves on the back for doing something that they should have been doing for many years. And the levels of investment in our nation's infrastructure uh, has been unacceptably low for too long. If you look at our competitors, if you look at China, uh, if you look at other Southeastern uh, Asian nations, they've really been putting a lot of money into their port infrastructure, their roads, their railways, their bridges, uh, at levels well above what the United States has been able, has been willing to do for some time. And that's that's showing. That's that's showing in, in them being more competitive as a whole. Um, but, you know, we have a real opportunity with this infrastructure law to, uh, to finally right some of those wrongs. And, you know, what we're tracking most closely is to make sure that those federal dollars are going out the door to invest in freight and port projects, that they're being targeted towards the best possible investments. You know, we want to make sure that uh, the DOT and the states are identifying projects that are going to have a national consequence. And we're not just, you know, repaving a road that might lead to a port, uh, you know, that, that serves a minor market, uh, you know, in one part of the country, right? We want to make sure that we are leaving bottlenecks uh, that undermine national movements, whether it's coming to the port of LA, Long Beach, and it's, on, it's, it's heading into Chicago, or it's coming to the port of Baltimore and heading to Ohio. Um, there's a lot of opportunities there to, um, you know, to expand bridges, to increase the size of tunnels so that you can double track trains, et cetera, that will make a big difference and help improve our overall competitiveness and help our businesses uh, move goods uh, at cheaper rates than what they're able to do today. And so, John, you just mentioned businesses there. And so uh, I definitely want to get your insight and your take on how some of these C-suite individuals are starting to respond to some of these changes, some of these policies that are in place, or really responding to some of the challenges that we're seeing so far um, over the last year and a half plus. Yeah, you know, it's it's really interesting. I think this year, everyone asked, a lot of people ask me, when are, when are things going to return to normal? You know, when are we going to be back to what we were pre-pandemic? And I think, you know, the more, I think the accurate answer to that is we're not going back. You know, I think, I think the pandemic and I think the supply chain challenges that we've seen that are partly, that are largely due to the pandemic, you know, they've, they've forced some pretty big thinking on the part of a lot of the C-suite leadership. And for them, you know, they're no longer thinking about how do we return to normal? What they're thinking about is how do we make sure that something like what's happening right now doesn't happen again? And I think for a lot of them, that doesn't mean just waiting, th waiting for things to return to normal. It means making changes in how they do their operations today. Look, a good example of that is just-in-time delivery, right? For the longest time, you know, I think a lot of businesses uh, followed the, sort of the Toyota uh, uh, credo of, you know, lean, lean delivery, lean supply chains. But I'll tell you, you know, we have member companies, OEMs, right, who have had to shut down production at a cost of $20 million per week simply because they don't have $500,000 in inventory. And I will tell you that the cost of uh, warehousing that $500 in inventory is a pittance compared to the $20 million that they're losing every week because they don't have their production going here in the United States. So I think that's one example of where we're gonna see some changes. I think we're also seeing uh, uh, potential shifts here 
in conversations we're hearing a lot about in DC around nearshoring, reshoring, and regionalization of production. Uh, there was an uh, interesting story that uh, came out a few weeks ago about the United Colors of Benetton, right? It's an it's a Italian fashion house. And they recently made the decision that they're moving a lot of their production out of China and they're moving it closer to the markets that they're serving. So for example, for the European market, they're moving their production to Egypt, to Tunisia, to Croatia, uh, and with the goal to have half of their production out of China by the end of this year. Um, it's, it's a good example of one business that is actively changing its supply chain management in the face of uh, you know, unprecedented challenges. And then finally, on the policymaker side as well here in Washington, you know, there is an enormous focus on supply chain resiliency. The United States is not alone in this. You know, China is also taking a hard look at how do we make sure that the critical goods that are necessary for our economic security uh, are being tended to, that there's no risk that there's gonna be an interruption in goods uh, from a country that may not necessarily have the United States best interests at, at heart. So I think you're also gonna see increasing policies from decision makers, excuse me, uh, increasing examples of policies from decision makers that are going to focus on supply chain resiliency. I think that's a great point that you bring up there. And I love the, the example that you used of especially that, that company that had to really shut down operations because they didn't have $500,000 in inventory on hand to really kind of continue. When you're looking at, of course, increasing warehouse prices, um, one of the interesting things that we're seeing in the latest data points, I know that came out on one of the series I watched regularly, the Logistics Managers Index, was that inventories are starting to increase upstream during these unseasonably times. Yeah. So we saw inventories increase in December. And that's not typically what we would see. And we saw them increase again, even stronger upstream in January. And so these are a little bit unseasonable. Um, so are you seeing maybe more examples of, you know, instead of that just in time, there's that just in case, but sometimes that just in case is filled with sometimes the wrong inventory? I, you know, I think we're going to see more just in case. Um, I think we're going to see a lot more conservative actions by um, by the business community to ensure that they are not having any interruptions in their in their production. Um, but I think you're going to I think there's a, a strong likelihood that you're going to see examples of this beyond just warehousing and instead to uh, how these supply chains work. Right. So um, if a company is moving uh, production, if they're relocating it here in the United States or in Mexico or Canada, and taking it out of China as a result, because they don't want that uncertainty that uh, that they've been working through this last year and a half. So, John, when you think about the nearshoring efforts, um, of course, there are you know lots of things that kind of pop into my mind of when you're looking at those upstream manufacturers that are really at really they're at need of skilled labor. That's going to be one of the things that's at the top of their list of we just need more people. Um, when we hear stories of nearshoring or, you know, um, bringing work or labor here, um, what are going to be some of those biggest challenges? Because I know labor is going to be one where we are just kind of at odds for just trying to fill some of those factories. And then it's difficult because we also have um, some baby boomers that are exiting the workforce as well. That's a lot of um, skill and, and decades of, of knowledge um, exiting so what are you seeing as some of like the biggest challenges with some of those um, nearshoring efforts right now? What are going to be some of the things that can really kind of alleviate that? Well, you know, workforce is certainly going to be a big part of that, right? We are 4 million uh, workers short of what we were pre-pandemic levels. 
um, something that's talked about a lot is the trucking industry, right? They they are they had driver shortages prior to the pandemic, um, but you know they are eighty thousand drivers short from where they should be for current freight volumes right now. Um, but you know, so the workforce is absolutely going to be important. I think getting immigration levels up. They've been flat for a number of years, uh, and historically, immigration has been. Um, a real solution to alleviating any sort of labor challenges or shortages that the United States have had. Um, we haven't had a good immigration policy in this country for for a few years now. We need to fix that. But another thing that you know I think uh, we need to be mindful of is this word that I think you hear a lot about in D.C., which is NIMBY. And it's an acronym for Not My Backyard. And you know we policymakers like to think that uh, the United States can can produce anything that it wants to. But the reality is that's just not true. Uh, you know, I think a lot of Americans are very interested in the this energy transition that's happening. It's moving to solar panel, to batteries, electric cars, and the like. But one thing that Americans don't want to talk about is the reality of having a mine to produce the rare earth minerals or the other critical minerals like nickel that is responsible for those batteries, or the processing facilities that typically are are can be pretty dirty um, to. Uh, you know, to create those those products. And so I think, you know, as the U.S. economy continues to shift in these new directions, there's going to be a continued uh, uh, need for allies that not only have the workforce and the interest in, in, uh, in supporting these industries, um, but also, you know, quite frankly, the, um, the ability to do so. You know the mines, the the access to raw materials, et cetera. I can only imagine um, in times where maybe some workforce shortages are in uh, the mix that technology always seems to enter uh, the arena as well, whether it be in the form of autonomous vehicles or more really interesting things happening within warehousing with uh, robotics and things like that. Right. Um, John, so one of the things, like I said at the beginning of this talk, was that I loved your background because you've been on both sides. You're no stranger to the supply chain, um, but you're also no stranger to some of those, uh, to the private sector as well. Um, when you're looking at, you know, having to go through some of those education processes for some of the, the policy makers that may not have that background, what are some of the challenges that you, that you come across from time to time? Because I can only imagine that there may be some unintended consequences um, from some that might not know different parts of the supply chain or what might not really fix a certain problem or might cause more problems? Yeah, you know, um, you know, I think by and large, it's, it's a good question. And by and large, uh, you know, if you, inter- if you sit down with the congressional staff for a U.S. representative or for a United States senator, you know, typically you're dealing with a 20-something or an early 30-something-year-old who is supply chains is one of maybe five or six uh, uh, issues that they may be dealing with, right? And it's not like minor sort of niche issues like, um, you know, uh, like hours of service for truck drivers, right? It's it's big topics like trade, defense, uh, supply chain, right? So oftentimes, you know, they're not going to have the specialized uh, knowledge that I think a lot of business community members might have. Um, you know, they're, they're looking at it from a very high level and too often, you know, these are topics that are very, they're abstractions for them. So, you know, some of the most valuable advocacy work that I think we can do when we're interacting with policymakers is make it real, you know, talk about what this means for jobs, talk about 
this is what I have to do to hire somebody for my factory. These are the sorts of things that I'm thinking about when I'm standing up a new facility. Like it costs me X amount of money to operate this uh, at a level where I can, I can justify its existence. And these are the sorts of things that are gonna prevent me from making that, that return on my investment that I need to. It's, it's making it real and drilling it down to kind of show, um, show why the uh, potential policy is either supportive of where we need to go or potentially destructive. I think another thing to be mindful of uh, as well is you know, in the administration, uh, you oftentimes are interacting with people who are very, very familiar on the policy side, on the, you know, the regulatory aspects, what it means to put a rule into place. Sometimes the human story gets lost and, uh, and it, it can be a challenge to graft that the human experience uh, or the real world experience to that rulemaking or that policy that's under development. And being able to demonstrate that and show that is exceptionally critical and exceptionally important, uh, especially with all that's going on in Washington, D.C. these days. I think that's a, a crucial point you just made there. It's just not to get lost in all of these, uh, you know, events, but there's actual people here who's are going to who's going to get impacted by this. Um, John? Yeah, if I, if I may, um, you know, the most valuable asset that the chamber has um, oftentimes is our members. And it's the people that we bring in to talk to these policymakers because they can talk about it at a level of reality that somebody like myself who lives and breathes the policy stuff, but doesn't, isn't working on the factory floor or isn't driving the truck. You know, I don't, I don't have exposure to those sorts of experiences, but frankly, those are the most important experiences to help, uh, to help make your case before policymakers. No, Sorry, I greatly agree. And I think too many times that those groups get overlooked, especially when some of these policies get put in place. So I think that's, that's great to highlight there. Um, in closing, John, I, I going to maybe put you on the spot a little bit here. Maybe you might be a little shot in the dark. Maybe you already know. Um, but in 2022, from your perspective, what is the one thing or the one shift in the supply chain that you're most hopeful for or that you're looking forward to the most in this upcoming year? Uh, you know, I think there's a lot of opportunity uh, this year as businesses and policymakers take a hard look at what's working and what's not working so well in supply chains. One thing I'm really concerned about is the increasing geopolitical focus on supply chains. U.S. government, the U.S. government, uh, and other governments across uh, across the world, you know, they're taking a hard look at supply chain resiliency, and they're increasingly putting in place policies that allow them to sort of nitpick decisions that the business community is making. Um, you know, I'm concerned about. Uh, a continuation or expansion uh, of those sorts of ad hoc sort of policies that I think are ultimately detrimental to the business community. But I think what I'm also very hopeful about is that, you know, we have an opportunity to take a hard look at what's working. And I think, you know, we've, I think business as usual has relied upon some uh, assumptions that didn't play out so well over the last year and a half. Uh, you know, we had five to seven years of e-commerce growth happen in the course of one year, right? And that's driving huge changes across the transportation logistics industries. I look at that as a huge opportunity to do some good stuff, um, whether that's looking at ways to kind of revision uh, or revise what a truck driver is, make that, make that profession more attractive to bring more people in, uh, looking at ways to lean on our strategic allies to produce the goods that we need for this new economy that we seem to be growing into. Frankly, 
I see a lot of opportunity this year. A lot of work, but a lot of opportunity. John, I, I just threw you a curveball and you you nailed it. So I appreciate it. Thank you so much for your time today. We definitely need to have you back on the Freight Waves airs again. This has been incredibly insightful. We appreciate you being here. Thank you so much for the time. I enjoyed it. Thank you. And thank you all so much for tuning in. There is plenty more global supply chain content coming up. So stay tuned and enjoy.